Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Hey, thanks Walter Parks for our theme song. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, walterparks.com. Good place to check out. And hey, Devine Dial, thank you so much for managing WPVMFM. We could not do this community radio without you. Well done, Devine. And if any of you listening would like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a good place to visit and find out all sorts of things about community radio. If you would like to join me, on a Saturday morning Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session, you can always come and be part of our Imaginative Storm Writers community. We gather at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, and we write for an hour. So if you'd like to be part of our writers group, the door's always open. ImaginativeStorm.com, that's ImaginativeStorm.com. And if you would like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can always connect with me through my website. I would love to hear from you. What's your story? Where are you in, in the world out there? What's going on? Here's something that's going on. Today, I am with a friend of mine. I've been doing my calls on Zoom, but today I have a friend visiting me. We're in Taos, New Mexico. His name is Gareth Higgins. Gareth lives in Asheville half the time, lives in Belfast the other half the time. That's six months and six months, more or less. You may know Gareth's name if you live in Asheville. Gareth is an author. He's also a fabulous storyteller and leads workshops all over the world. And I don't know what else he does, but he does a lot of things. And we've been friends for quite a while. And he's visiting just for a day. And so today we're in person, sitting in what I would like to call a studio, but it's just actually on a couch. Gareth Higgins, <laughs> welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Uh, thank you. It's a very glamorous couch. Well, I'm glad that it suits you <laughs> because it's the only one we have. Uh, Gareth, you have been moving around the world a fair amount all your life, and you've been based out of Asheville, and you've done a lot of activist work. You go to your hometown, Belfast, and then you come back to Asheville and you go back and forth. And you just finished a book about how to deal with fear, with being afraid. And I'd love for you just to take a run at whatever you would like around the subject that you're most interested in, which is helping people learn how to not be afraid, which is close to the title of your book. Mm -hmm. So what's going on between Asheville and Belfast and, and Gareth Higgins? Oh, lovely question. I grew up afraid. I was living in a society that was in trouble and our family was affected by that trouble. And a lot of the time it was about don't go there, don't talk about this, be careful. And at the same time, I think a lot of people my generation still experienced the joys of childhood and the innocence of childhood. If people have seen Kenneth Branagh's movie Belfast, one of the things it does really well is show that you can be living on a street that's literally on fire. And if you're a child and doesn't understand it, you might be afraid one minute and playing a fantasy game the next. All that said, by the time I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was mentored by older, wiser people 
who brought me into the peace building world. And the peace building world is a highfalutin term. I think sometimes we can make important things harder to do, depending on the way we talk about them. Peace building in Northern Ireland happened at a lot of levels, but the primary level that it needed to happen at was between ordinary individuals getting to know each other, trying to learn to see life through the eyes of the other. I mean, we have a situation in Northern Ireland where our community has been so divided that some of us took up arms and killed each other over this and over trying to achieve a political end one way or the other, either a united Ireland or maintaining Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. And it is absolutely true that when two individuals from opposite sides of the fence, so to speak, when they sit down and get to know each other a bit, it's not a panacea, but it does make it harder for them to kill each other later. There's research on a separate matter regarding the reduction of homophobia, the single most strongly correlative factor in the reduction of homophobia is if a person knows that they know an LGBTQ person. I mean, I am part of the LGBTQ community, but if a person who doesn't identify as LGBTQ or holds homophobic views knows that they know someone in their personal life who is themselves LGBTQ, that is the strongest correlation with reducing the homophobic view. Obviously, it doesn't happen in all cases, but what needed to happen in Northern Ireland was for people to know each other. Now, there are structural levels to the injustice, to the legacy of colonialism, to organizations using violence, to even the question of when did the troubles start? Some people say 1969, some people say 1172. The problem that caused us to not be in touch with each other one-to-one -one was fear. Fear ended up being used as a reason to stop people talking to each other and potentially diluting the ideological purity of the two sides. So my experience in the last few years, it's nearly 25 years since the peace agreement was signed in Northern Ireland. I've lived in the US for about 14 years. I've been in Asheville for a decade or so, has been to observe the United States appearing to become a politically divided society in a way that it didn't look like in the past. That's not to say that it wasn't, it just didn't look that way before. That political polarization and the radicalization of politics does appear to be getting stronger. And I think there may be some things that we learned in Northern Ireland and some things that people in societies that have been through civil conflicts like South Africa, Sri Lanka, Colombia, Rwanda even, might be able to share in the context of the US that could help prevent worse things happening and may even help things get better sooner than we might expect. The term troubles. Yeah. You hear that term used to refer to the conflicts that happened between the Protestants and the Catholics and mm -hmm. the other factions in Northern Ireland mm -hmm. over a long period of time. You said maybe it started way back centuries ago. You don't hear that term used to describe those kind of conflicts anywhere else, or I haven't heard it used. Why do you think troubles became yeah. the term? Yeah, you know, I don't like the term because it doesn't actually identify the gravity of what happened. 3,700 plus people killed, 43,000 plus people directly physically injured between 1968 and 1994. It's a very large percentage of the population of the North of Ireland. Nobody knows who coined the term, the Troubles. It's a very Irish colloquial term. There's a thing within Irish culture, North and South, I think it's to do with resilience, that we sometimes make 
painful things smaller than they are because our story is that there is just so much tragedy in our lives. It's tragedy on top of tragedy that we want to dilute it somehow by using a word like troubles. You could also use academic terms like intractable low intensity civil conflict. That also doesn't identify the gravity of it because really the only way you can come close to appreciating the gravity is to learn everything you can about one person who died and sit with that. And you should only do that if you're doing it in a healthy way. You don't do it just to feel despair. I remember visiting the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in DC in the year that it opened and being given an identity card of a Jewish person who had been killed in the Holocaust. And you could follow that person's journey through the museum. And of course you see the big picture, but you're also following this one person's story. I think that was a profoundly helpful, thoughtful, meaningful way to think about this. You don't hear the word troubles used to describe the Rwandan genocide. And one of the things that amazes me, I was on a part of a panel a few weeks ago, a woman from Rwanda, a man from Bosnia. In terms of the, the percentage of their populations who were killed in the Rwandan genocide and in the civil wars that affected Bosnia, it's far more than the north of Ireland. One of the things that always amazes me is it seems like the greater the suffering, the greater the resilience. And I find people from Rwanda expressing empathy to people from Northern Ireland. And I still do a double take because, you know, nearly a million people were killed in Rwanda. But of course, when it comes down to it, if you have suffered and if you've held that suffering and perhaps if you've been assisted pastorally or therapeutically in grieving in some way, not that that journey ever ends, you don't buy into a hierarchy of suffering. You don't get into competitive victimhood. One victim is equal to any other victim. One person's pain is equal to any other person's pain. So I'm not particularly concerned about what we call the conflict. I'm concerned about what we can learn from it and what we're doing now to repair its damage and to prevent it from taking place again. And if there are things that we can share with other people to say, hey folks, you don't have to do it this way. You don't have to do it this way. There are experiments that have been tried all over the world in terms of making democracy more inclusive, for instance having policing operating according to human rights and equality principles to the degree where potential abuses by police are radically reduced and also serving police officers feel better about their work, are better resourced and aren't scapegoated anymore. I mean, goodness, if we were facing a problem like that anywhere in the world, wouldn't you want to learn from places that have already taken some steps toward change? Why do you think people fall short in the, that learning? I think that the United States, like every place in the world, it has its light and its shadow. It has its, its gifts and its problems. And to me, the gift of the US is vision. Vision, you can do it. See a problem, let's do something about it. And one of the best examples I can think of that in the US would be Habitat for Humanity where in 1979, Millard Fuller had a vision to build houses cooperatively with people who could not afford houses on the conventional market and make it possible for poorer people, people who were disenfranchised, to be homeowners. And 40 years later, Habitat for Humanity had built one million houses. Only in America, only in the US, would that kind of vision arisen and been brought forth in that way. That's what I mean about American visionary consciousness. 
The flip side is sometimes American visionary consciousness is applied without wisdom. The best recent example of that is the invasion of Iraq. Only the US would have sponsored the invasion of Iraq and thought, yeah, we can go in there and do it. We'll be done and dusted. It'll all be fine because we're American. When you look at the visionary consciousness in the US, when it's applied to wisdom, Maya Angelou, the Catholic worker movement, the anti-Vietnam war movement, the anti-Iraq war movement, veterans for peace, the films of Steven Spielberg, the, <laughs> the films of Mira Nair, an Indian American director, at home in the world. It's a beautiful garden that you see. When it's not applied to wisdom, accountability, or cooperation with anybody else, often problems arise. Look at Northern Ireland, and the gifts and the challenges are almost a pure mirror image. Vision is hard to find. Vision does not often arise in Ireland. There's this sense of cultural low self-esteem, and uh, who are we to do this? But there are deep, deep roots of connection with the local culture. And perhaps paradoxically, I think people in Belfast, the average person in Belfast, feels more agency over their local politics and over the national politics of the north of Ireland than the average US American does. And part of that's because the place is so small, but part of that is because we've been through a process in which participation in democracy was seen as part of the path out of horror. The US is so big, so part of this is not pejorative. It's just so big. We're here in New Mexico. There's people from New Jersey who have never been to New Mexico, and people from New Mexico who have never been to New Jersey. And the distance between New Mexico and New Jersey is further than the distance between Ireland and France. And the difference of the culture between Ireland and France is huge. But it's dead easy. Loads of people from Ireland have been to France and Spain and Portugal. So you've got that challenge of geography. The place is just so big. And then there is a deep-seated cultural reluctance in the US to listen to anybody else's stories. There isn't an active seeking out of wisdom from somewhere else. And this is ironic and quite sad because the US has been involved through what I would call benign foreign policy in helping a lot of places, Northern Ireland being one of them. Successive US presidential administrations from Reagan to the present day have participated in trying to support a peace process in Northern Ireland. The peace process in Northern Ireland was chaired by former Senator George Mitchell. This is an example of benign foreign policy. George Mitchell working in Northern Ireland for four years and taking no salary for doing so. A pure act of selfless diplomacy. Most Americans don't know this. Most Americans, when they think about US foreign policy, it's either, I'm really glad we fought that war or that war was terrible. What I want to encourage here is for US Americans to listen to the stories of places elsewhere where seemingly intractable problems have been faced and transformed. And what I want for my people in Ireland, and I see US American people as my people too. I've been here a long time. I want the people where I'm from to listen to the visionary consciousness of the US that can say, you don't have to stay this way. You can actually change something. You could do something meaningful. Here's the energy with which we're going to do it. And if you apply US American visionary consciousness to perhaps the deeper roots in Europe, 
and a willingness to collaborate with people who are going to tell you when they think you're wrong. Oh my goodness, amazing things can unfold then. Can you reflect on the difference between listening and hearing? I listen to you. I am listening to you, taking you in. I also hear the horn on the road. In a radio interview, listening uh, might seem harder because there need to be pauses and silences. And I like someone's definition of listening being, I'm not going to think about what I'm going to say until the other person has finished speaking. But I value what I've learned from the nonviolent communication movement, which prioritizes conversation in a different way than the way our culture prioritizes conversation. Our culture says the purpose of conversation is for me to persuade you. If we already agree, great. If we don't agree, the purpose is for me to show you that you're wrong. And it would be nice if you agreed with me at the end. As long as I defeat you in the conversation, then we've had a good conversation. As long as you know where I stand. Nonviolent communication would say, that's a very, very, very superficial purpose for conversation. The deeper purpose of conversation, and the one that's going to save the world, will be if we all learned that the purpose of conversation can be listening in order to understand. So you and I would talk, and my purpose and my commitment would be to listen to you, Nave, and you talk, and then I'd reflect back and say, I think what you're saying is this, and you would say, yes, that's what I'm saying. Or you might say, no, 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 you didn't quite get it. Let me try again. And you would say it again. And I'd say, oh, is this what you're saying? And you say, yeah, you got it. And I might fundamentally disagree with what you said, but the conversation is complete if I've shown you that I understood you. Now, we can then design a process whereby, hey, would you like to argue about this? And you might say to me, I'd like to learn more from you. But we would be bonded much more profoundly than if we just had a conversation in which I defeated you intellectually. In fact, that would damage our friendship. It doesn't mean I shouldn't say what I think, but it's not in the service of trying to beat you down. And it would be much more difficult for me to agree or disagree with you if I misunderstood you. Yeah, absolutely, because you're disagreeing or agreeing with the wrong thing. Uh, my husband, Brian, and I went to see a movie about 10 years ago. I was very moved by the movie. At a climactic moment, Brian turned to me and was going to say, this is so cliched. But he saw that I was crying. And so what he did instead was he just took my hand and held it tightly for the rest of the film while I wept at what I was being moved by. And in the car on the way home, he said, I'm really curious to know what your experience with that film was and what's happening to you right now if you want to talk about it. And we don't need to talk about what I thought of it. You can ask me in a couple of days. That was a humane, loving act. When we talked about it a couple of days later, he was able to point out that this was a bit cliched or this was a bit predictable. But the film wasn't operating on that level for me. The film was touching me about memories from my own life. It would have been cruel for him to interrupt my tears and say, don't be a baby, for instance, or what are you crying at? This movie's stupid. That's just cruel. He didn't have to like the film in order to be able to honor the experience I was having with it. And I've never forgotten that. And I was challenged by it a couple of years ago when the same experience happened in reverse where he was moved by a film that I thought was cliched and I didn't 
notice that he was moved and I sort of mocked the movie and he's like, you're doing the very thing that you didn't want me to do those years ago. It's a really good lesson. Some people hearing these ideas for the first time, they think they're boring, anything but. Nonviolent communication in which people can state the impact of something you did on them, name the needs that are going unmet, and then make a request about how to do it differently next time, that's really interesting to me. That's far more interesting than someone just saying, oh, don't be ridiculous, or that movie was terrible, or I hated it. In our shared culture, the content of most conversations is some variation of, did you see what that idiot politician just did? Or did you see what that great politician just did to them? Some variation of that. Or I liked that movie, or I didn't like that movie, or did you hear who was sick? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but we don't know how to talk about primary experience. A dear friend of mine called Mo Morrow, who's been to the movies and meeting festivals that we've run, was telling me she doesn't have a TV in her house and she only watches movies that we recommend. <laughs> Right? She comes to the festival and she watches stuff that we recommend in our newsletter. And she said it's because she wants to deal in primary experience. So when she sees a film, she doesn't just want to say that had a good car chase or did you see what Spider-Man did? She wants to have it operate on her as part of her life. And then ask herself, what does this mean for me? How am I going to change as a result? What do I not want in my life? as a result. But our culture hasn't taught people to have conversations like that. And I think sometimes people in the world that I often work in, which is sometimes the academic world or the conference world, sometimes it's our fault because we've talked in such a way that it makes it seem inaccessible. People feel stupid. They feel like they don't have the tools to be able to have a meaningful conversation. One of the things that we try to do at our events is to make them really accessible, not use jargon. Just tell me about your day. Tell me about what's going on on the inside of you. Nonviolent communication, you described it. And yeah. then I'm think, I think I understand what violent communication mm. would be, which is that's really miserable or you're, a, you know, or, or you're an idiot or yeah, yeah. critique, critique, the, the nasty kind of snarky critiques yeah, that yeah. one gets. It's not even criticism. It's some other version of something that yeah. painted as criticism. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the violent conversation. Do you think violence is a natural part of the human existence? Hmm. Violence has been limiting itself over time. You know, we used to just have a war of all against all. If your village pillaged my village three years later, once enough men had been replaced or enough boys had become of age, they'd go back into your village and pillage yours. It would just be tit for tat pillaging. And then when people discovered, well, actually you could make things and trade them between the villages, that that would be better. You didn't typically trade with people who had recently massacred your relatives. So over time, frankly, art saved us. Art reduced violence because I might weave a basket and you might catch some fish. And I would give you the basket and you would give me the fish. And we don't kill each other anymore. A credible body of academic research that suggests violence has been generally reducing over time. We moved from massacres to one-to-one -one killings to having a legal code to the point now where most of the violence in the world is rhetorical rage, the expression of rage in words and attitudes. 
your question is, is it naturally occurring? It probably is. Simply the evolution of a human being requires being initiated through different stages, just the same as grief is a natural part of the human condition and joy is as well. The question is, how do we develop to the point where we can contain these energies and use them for good? So clearly there are times when physical force is the noble, compassionate thing. One example would be a friend of mine still lives with a physical injury because a few years ago in Albuquerque, he stepped outside his house and he saw his neighbor was being crushed under a really large motorcycle. It had just fallen on him. My friend went over and lifted the motorcycle up. And it was one of those moments we've all heard of where he wasn't physically strong enough to lift the motorcycle, but an adrenaline surge enabled him to do it. So he did it, saved this man. And several years later, he still has physical injuries that arose from him lifting up that motorcycle. Now there's an example of physical strength, physical force. that was absolutely noble. And then there are occasions in the world where something that could be called violence might be necessary to protect someone more vulnerable. And that's my view. I'm not 100% pacifist. I'm an advocate for creative nonviolence being attempted until it is exhausted. And then if there are no other options at all to protect someone more vulnerable than me, than to use some form of force, then it's justified. But as far as scapegoating goes, and scapegoating certainly seems to be a natural part of the human condition. The only legitimate scapegoating is when I scapegoat myself. What I mean by that is, you've heard the lifeboat dilemma. You're on a lifeboat that's got six seats, but there's seven people on it. And of the seven, one of them is Hitler, and one of them's your grandmother, one's your best friend, one's a newborn baby, one of them's you. Who do you throw out of the lifeboat? The only legitimate answer to that question is, I can volunteer to throw myself out of the lifeboat. I cannot decide to throw anybody else out. That's not a legitimate decision. Now, the beauty of what's called mimesis, which is imitating other people's behavior, and this is how behavior gets learned in the world. People do what they see other people doing, and they want what they think other people want. The show is called Keeping Up with the Kardashians, but the Kardashians are trying to keep up with somebody else. And we project onto other people, we think they want something, so I'm going to want that too. And we need to, as the writer Luke Burgess says, break out of these cycles of negative mimesis and choose models who we're going to imitate who are wise. Gandhi's a good one. Maya Angelou's a good one. My friend Mayhan in Asheville is a good one. Choose the models, because there's always going to be models, and then ask, what would they do if they were me? When you do something like say, I'm going to throw myself out of the lifeboat, what do you think would happen if you were on a lifeboat and people were trying to vote about who would go and one person said, I'll go overboard. What's likely to happen is somebody else on the lifeboat would say, I'll join you. You don't have to do that by yourself. Why don't you go into the water for 15 minutes and then you can get back in the boat and then I'll go into the water for 15 minutes. When people do beautiful things, when people do noble things and when other people see them do those things, it multiplies. This is a fact of life. But to gauge from the news media and particularly the news commentary media, you know, the people who have hour long shows on weeknights in which they talk about what they think about the world, you would think that there's no goodness in the world at all. And the only things that get replicated or expanded are the worst possible things. And that simply isn't true. Even 
at a mundane level of statistics, it's not true that there is more violence in the world than there is nonviolence. It's not true that there's more horror in the world than there is goodness. Just look at the average day of the average person and pay attention to it and you'll see. When you were younger and you were growing up in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, in the Troubles, you said you played and had a childhood yeah. in the midst of all, all of yeah. that. So I would think that your point of look at your ordinary day, yeah. you go out of the house, you walk to the store, yeah. you come back, you might see something violent along the way, of course, but most of the time, at least I don't see it much mm -hmm. in my ordinary day. Now, if you live in an area that's more troubled, mm -hmm. then you might see it more often, but even in the toughest place, there's probably also peace amongst the violence. Yeah, well, and I did not live in a neighborhood where there was active violence on those streets. Our family was profoundly affected by the violence and bereaved multiple times by the violence. And both my parents were nearby and deeply personally affected. The thing that happens, often happens in wartime, is people become incredibly resilient and caring for each other. There's interesting stories about the Blitz in London in the Second World War, people having street parties in the midst of the Blitz during the day and really looking after each other. People didn't go hungry because they knew everyone's in trouble right now. There's a lot of stories about when terrible things happen, the best comes out of people. Now, that doesn't absolve responsibility those of us who are experiencing the privilege of, right now I'm not in danger. Well, there are other people who are in danger. The simplest way I can describe what I think the ethics of being a human should be. Look at the privileges you have and whether you think you earned them or not, those are the places from which you should serve the common good. If you have more money than you need, more land than you need, more education than you could use, <laughs> a, a gift with public speaking, a gift with writing, a gift with art, those are the places from which you should serve the common good. And by the same token, look at the places where you lack privileges, whether you feel you deserved that or not, and seek out emotionally mature people who you can ask for help. We've done this thing that emerged for us, it revealed itself to us as a way of gathering in small circles of six to 12 people once a week, have a potluck meal, and then ask four questions. Same four questions each time. First question is, what's something life-giving that you've experienced since we last met? And it could be as simple as a sunset or something really good happened in your life or you saw an old friend or whatever it might be. What's something life-giving? The second question, what's something that was not life-giving? Um, if I was St. Ignatius of Loyola who invented these questions, I would say, what is a source of desolation in your life? The point is not to feel the desolation, so you've got to be careful when you ask this question. We're not trying to induce the feeling of depression or despair. We just want you to factually describe this thing happened and it's been painful for me so that we can know you more, so that we can know you more, we can know each other more. And sometimes just sharing the problem really helps. The third question, how do you feel called to serve the common good with your life between now and when we next meet? And for me, often that's as simple as, I want to smile at everyone who serves me at a checkout in a grocery store. Have eye contact and smile. 
harder with masks these days, so I try to have a brief conversation. Or it might be I want to bring world peace. But, you know, somewhere between smiling at the checkout and bringing world peace, everyone's somewhere on that continuum. And world peace is probably not going to come in the next week, but we can take steps. And then the fourth question, and this is where it gets really radical. Having heard what we've heard, and this would be a group of six, eight, 10, 12 people, having heard what we've heard, is there anybody here who wants to offer some help to somebody? Or is there anybody who wants to ask for help? Knowing that you might not get it, and knowing that you don't have to accept it if it's offered. And I've been in rooms where people have said things like, I need a babysitter on Thursday night, and we can't afford to pay for one. Easy. One of us will babysit. I've been in rooms where someone said, I'm working a soul-destroying job that's paying me so much that it's really scary for me to consider quitting it, but it really is destroying my soul. And we as a group helped her find the courage to quit the job. And three months later, she was offered three new jobs, two of which were variations on the same soul-destroying job that paid more money. And so she was able to come to us and say, can you help me decline the high-paying bad jobs and take the lower-paying good one? I've been in a room where someone very dear to me had had a very sudden bereavement, one of his closest friends. And for about 18 months, when this group met, every other week, he would say, I miss Dawn, I miss Dawn. Can someone reach out and touch me? And I've been in rooms where people have said, I'm having an existential crisis. I don't know what to make of my life anymore. I don't believe in anything more anymore. Will one of you go for a walk with me every Saturday morning for the rest of my life? And the answer would be, how about we do the next two Saturdays and then we'll see where we're at after that. These four questions, they are so simple. They don't require expertise. They don't require religious belief. They don't even require good facilitation skills. They're just four questions. They change people's lives. And if we were all having a potluck dinner once a week with six, eight, 10 or 12 people, this would end poverty. It would induce peace between neighbors. I can't think of a problem in the world that I face in my daily life that this wouldn't help. And a bonus here to speak to those folks who fear that we're doomed. Sometimes I fear we're doomed. Most of the time I don't anymore. I used to think that a lot. There's two answers to that. One is every generation has thought that we were doomed. Every generation has had its own apocalyptic moment. I remember duck and cover. I remember people telling me about duck and cover. And I certainly remember 1983, the day after, and people fearing a nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States. My grandparents were in the Second World War. Their parents were in the First World War. My great-grandmother was a Polish Jew who fled Poland to avoid being killed in pogroms in the 1890s. Everybody has these stories. So every generation has its apocalyptic moment. And every generation that has predicted the end of the world has been wrong. So we should learn from that. That's the first thing. That doesn't mean we shouldn't take seriously trying to learn the best we can about the problems that do exist and what to do about them. You know, climate change can be solved. The threat of nuclear war can be solved. The rise of authoritarian populism can be solved. These are not unsolvable crises. But the second thing I'd say is, even if they don't get solved, even if we are doomed, 
Wouldn't you rather be part of a community of six, eight, ten, or twelve people who cared about the things that matter most so that you wouldn't be alone and that you'd find meaning in your life both from the connections within this community and a sense of purpose to serve the common good that isn't based on being famous or having best-selling book or being shiny or on the cover of a magazine, but simply what's most authentic inside you, what you care about the most, being the thing you get to do something about in the world. This thought is attributed to Martin Luther, but it's actually understood to be an anonymous quotation. If I knew the world was gonna to end tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree today. That may smack of privilege, but you know what? The people I know who've been most resilient and who've been most into planting the apple tree are the people who actually are living with an imminent threat of something terrible. People who've been through Northern Ireland, people in Israel, Palestine, people in South Africa, people in Colombia. And I don't wanna exoticize it, because I think this is in all of us. I wanna encourage people to plant their apple trees and to know they don't have to do it on their own. I've been thinking about the book you wrote about how not to be afraid. And I've also been thinking that much of what you have said up to this point is likely reflected in the pages of that book. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a bit about your book and mm. how that works for you and how it's worked for other people? Mm. And what it means to not be afraid and yeah. how do you not do that? Yeah, well, you know they say write what you know. That might be true for me. It was like write what you need to know. So I, I wrote this book as a way of learning about fear because I've experienced so much of it and I still do. But it came out of this concern that there was so much fear in the world now and I think it had been multiplied by social media and the way that Everything bad is projected into our phones instantly without editorial control. And we literally carry around these devices that also can be used for such wonderful, good, redemptive things. It was just going straight into our brains with this kind of everything's terrible, everything's a threat, everything's awful, and there's nothing we can do about it. I was trying to square that with, the, with what I've already talked about, that there's strong evidence that violence has been reducing over time, that humans are becoming a more compassionate species. What I discovered for myself was fear is a story you tell yourself about the things you're experiencing that comes mostly from your childhood, mostly from your upbringing, parents, education system, news media, headline news media in particular does have a significant role here because we've developed this mechanism somehow without really thinking about it, we've decided that the news is everything that matters on a given day and that it matters in the proportion that the news presents it. And so, frankly, the worst thing that happened today is the thing that leads the news. But it might not be the thing that happened to the most people. And peace usually isn't spectacular. So I would say the last 25 years of Northern Irish history have been a positive evolution. Now, over 150 people have been killed in the aftermath of the Northern Ireland conflict in the last 25 years. It wasn't a positive evolution for them. It was a universe to them and their families. And they grieve and they, you know, they will live with that. But the overall story has been one of reducing violence and moving towards something better. It seemed to me that I wasn't living like that was true. I was living afraid all the time. 
And I was living feeling like there's a danger behind every corner. And there is an aspect of that that's to do with post-traumatic stress and things that can be therapeutically supported and often can be really helped um, in that. But part of it's just about living in the world right now as a middle-class US American slash European person. I'm exposed to a lot of very loud storytelling that tells me I'm in danger and tells me there's nothing I can do about this danger and tells me that nobody's to be trusted. So I ask two simple questions. Is the story I'm telling true? And if it's not, what would be a truer version of the story? And then the second question is, is the story I'm telling helpful? And if it's not, what would be a more helpful version of the story? The precondition for those two questions is to ask, what is the story I'm telling in the first place? Who are we? What is a life for? Is a human life for achievement? Is it for success? Is it for being known by lots of people? I don't think so. I think a human life is for the experience of and service to the evolution of love. My reason for being is to experience the evolution of love in the world. And my purpose is to contribute to the evolution of that love. And I don't do it alone. You do it, I do it, we do it together. And sometimes we find we drop into conversation with each other where spirit to spirit are really talking. And it can be as simple as a smile at the checkout. This human being at the checkout who's also here to experience the evolution of love and to serve purposefully the evolution of love. This may sound superficial. Well, if it's superficial, so is the greatest poetry, and so was Jesus, and so was the Buddha, and so was Florence Nightingale, and so was Harriet Tubman. They're not superficial people. Love is a fierce thing. Love is a dangerous thing. Love is a courageous thing. It's also a delightful thing. It is about smelling the flowers and looking at the sunsets. But it's also about standing in front of bulldozers that are about to raise people's houses to the ground because of an unjust law. It's also about standing up and saying, no effing way are you going to hurt that person. And sometimes it's about saying, I think this film is cheesy, but I'm not going to tell the person who's crying that I think that. Instead, I'm going to take their hand and I'm going to say, I love you. And it's lovely that you're having this experience. Is there anything I can do to help enhance the experience that you're having? You talked about the first question, is this story I'm telling true? Yeah. And I have come across a lot of people who tell lots of stories yeah. and they are absolutely convinced those stories are true. And yeah. sometimes I believe them. Yeah. Other times <laughs> I think, well, I don't know if I believe this or not. <laughs> How do you know if a story is true? Well, how do you know if the story you are telling yeah. is true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you may not be able to know, and that's why I say we're looking for a truer version rather than the absolute true version. There are some simple pieces of scaffolding you can put in place, like check it out with people who you know in your spirit to be wiser than you are. A couple of people. It's a lovely line. My favorite line in a movie I would never think this would be my favorite line. It's from a David Mamet film called Heist with Gene Hackman. He plays a master thief, one of these guys who steals, but only steals from bad people. 
and for some reason, even though he must have stolen millions of dollars worth of stuff over the years, he lives quite frugally. <laughs> but he has to do one last score in order to be able to retire. Somebody says to him, you're really smart. How did you get to be so smart? And he says, I'm not that smart. I just thought to myself, what would somebody smarter than me do? And I did that instead. And that is spiritual direction. That is emotional maturing. That is ascending the ladder of evolution. I'm not smart, but I always know someone smarter than me or know of someone smarter than me. I can read a book or I can listen to a book or I can go and sit with Nave and say, hey, listen, can you help me out with this? What do you, what do you think? And you can tell over time who the people are who are speaking from a place of authentic wisdom. And then there's people who are speaking from sincerity, but it's not wise. And then there are people who are trying to manipulate you. And many of those people don't even know that's what they're doing, but you can tell over time. There's always someone wiser than you that you can find. And that's one of the great benefits of social media. You can find those wise people, but you need to take a breath sometimes when you're reading what they're saying and, and check it out in your spirit. Something feels a bit off about this. And then find a couple of wise people and ask them. That's one of the ways that I ask myself if the stories are true. Well, I agree with that. I've often said, I'm smart, but I'm not a genius. All I need to know are the phone numbers of a couple of geniuses. <laughs> and then I'll call them up <laughs> That's and ask, right. them, That's right. ask them what to do. That's so right. as we wind this down, tell people how they can get in touch sure. with you and some of the things you would like for them to know about yeah. in respect to what you're offering sure. professionally and well, personally. Well, thank you. And I love, this is the second time we've done this, I love the way you ask questions in these, these conversations. It gives me a chance to think through what I'm not even sure that I'm thinking about yet. So garethhiggins.net or theporchmagazine.com. And the book is called How Not To Be Afraid. You can get it wherever books are sold, as they say. And you asked what I want people to know. You have inside you a genius, not in the same sense the way you just used the word genius, not an Einstein genius. Probably some Einstein level genius is listening, but that doesn't make you more important than anybody else. Inside you, there's an animating genius in your heart or in your spirit that notices things that other people don't notice. And your calling is to make those things visible to other people, whether or not you get a book contract or a Pulitzer Prize or an Oscar or fame and riches. All those things have their own challenges too, so I'm told. I've had a book contract, but I haven't had a Pulitzer or an Oscar or fame. I'm privileged. <laughs> what matters is your genius being discovered by you and you stepping into that and making that contribution to the world and being in collaboration and community with other people who are looking to discover their own and support each other. Bring what you have and ask for what you need. That's what I want to invite people to and to keep stepping into in my own life. Gareth Higgins, thank you for spending this time with us today. I really appreciate all that you told us, what you've said, and the insights you've offered. So thanks ever so much. We'll do it again sometime. Look forward to it. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Gareth Higgins. I have to tell you, I was really pleased when Gareth called me a few weeks ago and said he was planning to come through New Mexico on his way out to California to do an event with David Wilcox. And Gareth wanted to know if he could come up here and visit me. And he indeed drove all the way up two hours or more 
to to see me and we only were able to spend 24 hours or less together but it meant a lot to me that Gareth took the time to make an appearance in my world and I've always enjoyed my conversations with Gareth because as you can tell in the interview that we just finished the conversation we just had Gareth has a fantastic ability to say things that are meaningful for the people listening to him while at the same time listen to what's being said and reflect back on the conversation that he's having with somebody else so that it rounds out and I really enjoyed sitting on the couch just listening to Gareth talk and I hope you did too and one of the things I really enjoyed about listening to Gareth unpack his ideas was the notion that we can engage with everyone in front of us, everyone around us with the same openness. Everyone has something important to say. We are all equal in that respect and everyone deserves to be noticed, respected, heard. And beyond that, I believe everybody feels the need to contribute something valuable to their community. How often have you perked up, beamed, smiled when somebody gave you a compliment, when somebody recognized you, when somebody said, hey, job well done, or fantastic work, I appreciate all your effort, or thank you ever so much for doing that. I noticed it, and so did a lot of other people as well. Now, Gareth also talked about responsibility. He pointed out that we are responsible for allowing ourselves to be more and more aware of the circumstances around us, the, the people in front of us, how we interact with our friends, our families, our communities. And then there's a deeper responsibility as well, and that's your responsibility for yourself. In our conversation, Gareth referenced his book more than once, How Not to Be Afraid. And you now know, after having listened to this conversation, that Gareth, being the realistic person that he is, he understands fear is part of the emotional fabric of every human being. So when Gareth is talking about how not to be afraid, I think he's talking about the opportunity we all have to take responsibility for ourselves. And by taking that responsibility, we learn how to manage our fears so they don't overwhelm us. And obviously, Gareth has learned how to manage his fears and not only manage them, but write a book about how not to be afraid and then speak to many, many people on how they too can manage their fears so their fears work for them rather than against them. And while it's essential that we help others and others help us, in the end, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. On the note of taking responsibility, I'm now thinking of a prose poem I wrote a few years back that speaks to this notion of taking responsibility. A few years ago, during the month of June, I was in New York City, and a friend of mine, Paul Pascarella, was fishing in Colorado, and for some reason, Paul was inspired to ring me up. He was standing in the middle of the stream, he had mobile reception, and he wanted to tell me about how many trout he had caught and released that day. He was excited, it was fun, he described the glistening sunlight on the water, the rippling creek, the way the mountains sloped up, and how summer had just arrived in the southern Rockies. So Paul was very happy about telling me all of this. I thanked him for the call and went on my way. The next morning, Paul called again, 
for some reason, he was not satisfied with all that he had said about catch and release. He wanted to clarify it more. So I answered the phone. And then after I finished the conversation with Paul, the second one, I wrote this piece about it because I was inspired by what Paul said. And it is all about taking responsibility for who you are and how you fit in the world. So here's what I wrote. Not satisfied with our conversation yesterday about releasing a large trout into a fast-moving stream, Paul Pascarella phoned again today. With my mobile to my ear, I went down six flights of stairs. I crossed the lobby of the building, stepped out on the sidewalk behind a young couple walking west on 29th Street, Paul said. I took him to the shallows. I held him gently in the easy flow. I moved him back and forth, nose to tail until three bubbles of air emerged and he regained his strength. Then, finally, as if he were my own child, I released him. The couple turned south down Third Avenue talking about theater and what they plan to do later. You know in any city, if you're not careful, you'll fall out of the sky and no one will hear you splash into the river. Now, who wants that? Everybody knows there's juice in giving yourself over to your dazzle, your swagger, your cool, your electricity, your soul-spirited, fire-breathing, sword-swallowing days under the big top where human cannonballs blaze and trapeze artists soar. Wet your hands. Take yourself to the shallows. Lower yourself gently in the easy flow. Move yourself back and forth, head to toe, until three bubbles of air emerge and you regain your strength until finally, as if you were your own child, release yourself back into the unreachable depths and velocity of the breaching stream. I titled that piece Catch and Release and of course we all have the responsibility of releasing ourselves back into the flow of life. So if we feel stuck or caught behind a rock or somehow hindered, we can take ourselves to the shallows and just open things up and toss ourselves back into the water. And on that note, I'd like to say thank you ever so much for spending this time with Gareth and with me on Twice Five Miles Radio. I appreciate your time, and we're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Hey, Walter Parks, thank you for the theme song. WalterParks.com if you're interested in any of Walter Parks' music. I love Walt's work, and I'm sure you will too if you listen to more of it. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. We Really do appreciate your work, and if any of you listening would like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a good place to start. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com, Nave spelled N-A-V-E. You can also go to my website, jamesnave.com, and take a look at some of the things that I'm up to. And if you'd like to join me any Saturday morning, at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, I host an imaginative storm 
writing prompt of the week session with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. The door is always open. We gather with a group of writers and write for an hour. If you would like to find the Zoom link, you can always visit imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com. And we call it Imaginative Storm because the idea is to write from the imaginative storm and take what you write to the creative form. We have discovered that when you let your imagination guide the process and inform your rational mind, a natural collaboration occurs between the imaginative mind and the rational mind. So you stay in the rational mind, you stay in the imaginative mind and expand them both at the same time and that expansion reflects itself on the page, often in really rather surprising, very remarkable ways. Aha happens a lot on those calls on Saturday morning. So if you'd like to tune in, you can always do so by going to imaginativestorm.com and the Zoom link will be right above the fold. So that brings us around to the end of our show. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. I certainly do appreciate it. And thank you for listening to what Gareth had to say. How not to be afraid. I think that's a rather provocative proposition. And as we go forth in a world that seems to have lots of disruption in it, it's probably a good thing to settle back and trust yourself and learn how not to be afraid so you can take on your own leadership role in the community that you function and live in. So once again, thanks ever so much for tuning in. And please do tune in again next time. And until then, I will catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.